Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Job. Job chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 528. Uh, We've finally arrived at the beginning of the series that you've been hearing about for a few weeks now. going to work together through the book of Job for the next few months, and so I pray that your enthusiasm will continue as it gets harder as we go through. We have essentially this morning sung Job chapter 1, and now we're going to read and study Job chapter 1. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject this morning. Have you considered Job? Job chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 1, and this is what the Word of God says. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups 
and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It happened so suddenly. You wake up to the prospects of all that a new day brings, only to lie down at the end of that day, having experienced the worst day imaginable. The routine doctor's appointment, the unexpected phone call, the text message, the email, and in an instant, your life is forever changed. These experiences testify to the fact that life is hard and none of us are immune to suffering. If you and I live in this sin-cursed world long enough, sooner or later, we will all experience the problem of pain and we will all find ourselves asking why bad things happen in a world in which a good God is in control. No one knew this better than a man named Job. The book of Job is the account of a man who experienced the most unimaginable losses and pain. And yet, as the Bible says, he had faith and courage to endure. As a result, there is great encouragement to be found for all of us in this book. Because the reasons for suffering are multifaceted and often beyond comprehension, the book of Job teaches us as Christians to trust in God's character and not man's wisdom as we faithfully persevere in and properly respond to suffering. Now, this book is not a myth or an ancient allegory. It is one of the greatest pieces of literature that has ever been written, and it is considered by most scholars to be the oldest book in our Bible predating the account of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Additionally, this book is a very personal book. It chronicles one man's account of walking with and wrestling with God through excruciating pain and suffering. Job is not an imaginary character made up by some Old Testament writer. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 14, Job is identified with two other Old Testament heroes, Noah and Daniel. If Job isn't real, then Noah and Daniel are not real. Job 
was a real man who lived over 4,000 years ago in a real place who was attacked by a real enemy who was confronted with real problems who endured real pain and who experienced real comfort from a real God and as a result Job is the representative of everyone who suffers a proper grasp of the first chapter of Job is vital in comprehending the remainder of the book. In this opening chapter, in four distinct scenes, we have a miniature picture of the entire book. Here we meet the main character, the adversary, and the central plot tension of the book. The question that God asks of Satan in this first chapter, have you considered Job, is a question that all of us need to answer. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We are going to consider Job by examining his character, the conversation concerning him, his calamities, and his confession. Notice with me, first of all, the character of Job in verses 1 through 5. The Bible tells us a great deal about Job in these first five verses. It tells us, first of all, in verse number one, that he was a blameless man. The Bible says there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, this verse does not convey the idea that Job was a sinless man because he was not. But he was a man of integrity who was complete and mature in his character. Job was a man of righteousness. The Bible says that he was blameless. This word was often used to describe a sacrificial animal that was spotless and without blemish. And when it is used to describe a human being, it refers to personal integrity or moral wholeness. Job was morally whole. He was blameless. The Bible says also that he was upright. It literally means that he was straight. It describes someone who doesn't deviate from God's law and God's standards. Job was just and fair and honest in all of his dealings. He was a man of integrity, without hypocrisy or duplicity. And in Job chapter 2, both his wife and God confirm and praise his integrity. This first verse also tells us that Job feared God and he turned away from evil. The phrase fear God means to respect who he is and what he says and what he does. It is a reverential respect for God that translates into loving obedience and worship from our lives. Oswald Chambers said it best when he said the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Job was a man of faith, a man of proven integrity, a man who feared God, a man who hated sin, a man, as verse 1 says, who turned away from evil. Job was a blameless man. In verses 2 and 3, the author tells us that he was a blessed man. 
The Bible says there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now remember, the events of the book of Job took place in the patriarchal age, in the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And in those days, a large family was seen as a blessing from God. And the fact that the Bible says that Job had seven sons and three daughters meant, if you will, that Job had the perfect family. And because this is the earliest book of the Old Testament, this is the first real picture we have of a godly family with godly parents and obedient children. You'll also notice in verse 3 that Job was blessed with possessions. The Bible says he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. In those days, wealth was calculated in terms of land and animals and servants. And as you can see from this verse, Job had all of these things in abundance. He belonged in an elite group of wealthy men in the Old Testament with the likes of Abraham and Solomon. And because Job feared God, and because the fear of God was so real and deep in his life, God was able to entrust Job with great material possessions. Job held on to these things, as you'll see, loosely. And all of these blessings in verses 2 and 3, as well as the way he managed them, earned Job the designation of being the greatest of all the people of the East. He was a blameless man. He was a blessed man. And in verses 4 and 5, he was a burdened man. The Bible says his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did continually. The, the text indicates that Job not only had a large family, but he had a good family. The Bible says that his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. Many scholars believe that these were birthday celebrations, that they would gather together on each one's birthday as a family and celebrate. And you'll notice the text says that these sons also invited their three sisters. And it's a picture of a perfect family, of a godly family, of a family who in days when women were not respected, respected the women in their family and held their sisters in high regard. In verse 4, you would be wrong if you uh, interpret it to think that there is drunkenness and immorality and laziness taking place in these feasts. No, these family gatherings were a mark of the divine blessing and prosperity of God that encompasses the whole beginning of this book in these first five verses. And you'll also notice that in verse 5, 
The Bible says that when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. It's important to remember this morning that Job lived before the sacrificial system. He lived before the book of Leviticus. And here in the earliest book of the Bible, we see a godly man who is burdened for his family. And he offers burnt sacrifices in which God would consume the whole animal as a picture of his anger and wrath towards sin. It's a picture of in the future what we would see of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, dying for your sins and my sins and the sins of the world. And Job offered these sacrifices in case any of his children sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And you'll notice how verse 5 ends. Job did this continually. He was burdened for his family. He took his role as spiritual leader in the home seriously. And he regularly and routinely offered sacrifices for his children. So what are we to do with the first five verses of this book? Well, here's what you need to take away from these verses. The Bible makes it clear in these first five verses that Job's suffering was innocent suffering. That Job, in his suffering, was not punished for sin. He was a blameless, blessed, burdened, godly man. In our consideration of Job, we not only see the character of Job, we also see the conversation concerning Job in verses 6 through 12. You'll notice in this second scene of this first chapter, the scene changes from earth to heaven, and we discover what Job never discovers, the reason for his suffering. These verses are one of the most mysterious passages in all of the Bible. It's as if a curtain or a window is opened and you are, and I are given a glimpse into the throne room of God in heaven where a great assembly or council is taking place. And in verses 6 and 7, we see the summons from God. The Bible says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. In verse 6, we see that God has summoned the sons of God, His ministering angels, to present themselves before him and give, an, give a report of all of their activity and their obedience to his commands. And the Bible says in verse number 6, On this given day, standing among all of these angels, is the fallen angel Satan. And the literal meaning of his title here in verse number 6 means adversary or one who opposes it describes Satan's whole aim and intention to oppose God, to oppose his truth, and to oppose his people. And you'll notice that both verse 6 and verse 12 teach us that even though Satan is a fallen creature, a fallen angel, he still has access to God. Now, it's not access in terms of 
fellowshipping with God and experiencing his blessings, but it is access to God in terms of God's governing rule over the world. In spite of what many think, Satan is not yet in hell. He has access to both heaven and earth. And the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 20 that he will not be cast into hell until right before the final judgment. And so he has access to God. Now look at verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down upon it. God asked Satan of his activity in this verse. And I need to remind you this morning that whenever God asks a question in Scripture, he is not looking for information. He already knows everything. He is omniscient. When he asks a question in Scripture, he is teaching us something. And in this instance, he is teaching us about the activity of Satan. And Satan's answer to God's question in verse 7 is exactly how Peter describes Satan's activity in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 when he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter reminds us that Satan is always on the prowl. He is the prince of this world. He blinds minds. He steals God's word. He opposes God's work. He sows tares. He tempts God's people. He attacks God's word. He spreads false doctrine. He persecutes God's church and he deceives the nations. And this is the account that Satan gives to God. And it serves as a reminder that in our Christian life, we do not wrestle with an abstract principle of evil. We wrestle with a real personality who plans and schemes and roams the earth to implement his strategy to devour and destroy the work of God and the people of God and the church of God. And so we see the summons of God. In verses 8 and through 11, we see Satan's attack on God. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And in these verses, the writer shows us A conversation between God and Satan concerning Job. And notice in verse number 8 that it is God. It is God himself who brings Job to Satan's attention. And in verse number 8, God repeats the characterization of Job almost word for word that we find in verse number 1. And he also adds in verse number 8 that Job is his servant a rare designation given by God to some of his people? And according to God in verse number 8, do you see it carefully? It's important. God says to Satan that there is none like Job in all the earth. 
There was something different about this man. Then notice in verses 9 and 10 that Satan responds to God's question of has he considered Job in verse number 8 with his own questions. And when you read verses 9 and 10, you see that his questions conform to his character, that he is an accuser. And in this instance, he is accusing God. Look carefully at verses 9 and 10. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? God, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased him in the land. And it appears on first reading that Satan is attacking Job in verses 9 and 10. But when you dig deeper in these verses, you see that Satan is really attacking God. He's accusing God of only receiving worship from Job because God blessed Job. We could paraphrase God, Satan's argument to God in this way. God, the only reason Job fears you is because you pay him to fear you. You have made a contract with Job. You promise to protect him and prosper him as long as he obeys you and worships you. God, you are not a God of worship. You have to pay people to worship you. That's what Satan is saying to God. And then, in verse number 11... Satan tells God that if he'll only stretch out his hand and touch all that Job has, Job will prove him right, that Job will curse God to his face. Now listen to me, friends. These verses that we've just looked at establish the theme of the entire book of Job. They, they should be underlined and highlighted and circled so that you understand completely what the book of Job is about. The question that Job will face and the question that all of us will face is this. Is God worthy to be loved, obeyed, and worshipped for who He is? Or do we only worship Him for His blessings and benefits? Is God enough? That's the theme of the book. And it reminds us that when God puts a hedge, a protective fence through which nothing can pass around us, and our life is comfortable and it's undistracted by problems and pain and suffering. It's easy to be faithful to God and worship Him. But it's when the hedge is removed that too often our faith weakens. Too often we become bitter and resentful. Too often we blame God. Too often we fall away from worship. Too often we give up on prayer. Too often we grow cold in our devotion. And the question that must be addressed is this. How do you respond when, you're, when the hedge is removed? How do you respond when the hedge is removed? 
is God worthy of your worship no matter what? And in verse 12, we see the sovereignty of God. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. You'll notice a couple key things in verse number 12. The word Lord is used. It's the key name for God. It's all capitalized, Yahweh. This word is used 31 times in the book of Job. And from the outset, that we are reminded that no matter what happens in our world, no matter what happens in our lives, Yahweh is in control. You also notice that the writer uses the word behold in verse number 12 to get our attention. Pay attention to what is about to happen. And what is about to happen is that God takes down the hedge from around Job and, look at the text carefully, God puts limits on Satan. And you say this morning, how could God take down the hedge around Job? And I say and remind you this morning that you need to remember that God never promised to keep Job from hardship and affliction. That the hedge around Job and the hedge around you and me is solely an act of grace from Almighty God. It is not a contractual agreement. And because God is Yahweh and Job is not, and because God is Yahweh and you are not, God has the absolute right and authority to put a hedge around and to remove the hedge, whether we agree with what he does or not. It reminds us that God is completely sovereign over all things and he rules from the throne of heaven the angels do his will and report to him. And even Satan cannot do anything unless God gives him permission. That's why Charles Spurgeon said, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you rest your head. God is sovereign over it all. So when tragedy strikes, we must remember that God in his wisdom... And unrivaled sovereignty remains completely in control. And he knows what is best for our lives. He is the Lord of our storms. He is able to calm the angry waves and hush the fierce winds. He is Lord over Satan. He is Lord over adversity. He loves us deeply and he always seeks what is best for us. Even when we do not understand and so in our consideration of Job, we not only see the character of Job and the conversation concerning Job, thirdly, we see the calamities of Job in verses 13 to 19. In these verses, Job experiences the most horrific day any man could ever imagine. Having received from permission from God to put Job's face to the test, Satan launches his attack ferociously, and quickly. Now you'll notice in verses 13 to 19, there is a phrase that is repeated that carries these verses through. Here's the phrase. You'll see it repeated three times. 
while he was yet speaking. And the repetition of this phrase emphasizes the rapid succession with which these devastating calamities occurred in Job's life. As one messenger of bad news was leaving, another one was arriving, highlighting the fact, listen, that Satan was intent on crushing Job to the ground while he was yet speaking And as Satan unleashes his hand upon Job, here's what we see in verses 13 to 19. We see an alternation between human disasters and natural disasters. And all of these disasters converge from all four points of the compass. The Sabaeans attack from the south. Lightning comes from the west. The Chaldeans attack from the north, and a great wind blows in from the east. And the other thing that's significant to note in these verses, that the increasing brutality of Satan's attacks is revealed in the fact that each successive loss that Job experiences is more valuable than the last. Notice them with me. In verses 13 to 15, He experiences the loss of livestock and servants. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. In these four verses, the first of four messengers comes to tell Job that all of his oxen and all of his donkeys have been stolen by the Sabaeans and all of the servants who were watching them have been killed except for the one who brought him news of this tragedy. In verse 16, he experienced the loss of sheep and shepherds. The Bible says, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Notice verse 16. The messenger blamed God for the tragedy. The fire fell from God. Now whether this was a lightning storm or some other natural disaster, the result was that a fire burned up the sheep and the servants And once again, we see there was only one servant spared who functioned as a messenger to Job. In verse 17, he experienced the loss of servants and camels. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. What you need to understand this morning in the culture of that day, camels were the most prized possession in the Arab world. They represented wealth. They represented status. They were of great benefit in transporting goods and people. And yet the Bible says that the Chaldeans took all of Job's camels and struck down all of his servants. But the greatest loss was the last one. In verses 18 and 19, the loss of sons and daughters. 
While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Some of you in this room know what Job and his wife feel like in this moment. You have experienced this kind of loss, the loss of a child or children. Can you imagine what Job and his wife must have been feeling in this moment? Devastating loss after devastating loss after devastating loss. And to put an exclamation point upon all of their grief and sorrow and hardship, all ten of their children taken away from them. And in a matter of moments, Job is reduced from riches to rags, from delight to disaster, from celebration to sorrow. And in one day, Job lost everything except for his wife and his health. And I'll remind you this morning, Job has no knowledge in this moment of verses 6 through 12. Nor does he have an explanation from God to help him understand what he just experienced. All he can do is see the devastation surrounding he and his family. And this is often the case for all of us. In the midst of pain and loss, God is doing something in our lives. But too often we don't understand or know what is happening. And even though we cannot comprehend the circumstances or the trial, in these moments we must trust in the character of God and the plan He has for our lives. And that is where I want to end this morning. In our consideration of Job, we've seen the character of Job and the conversation concerning Job and the calamities of Job. And finally, we see the confession of Job in verses 20 to 22. In verse number 20, we see... That after all of this that Job went through, Job responded to the sovereignty of God. Look at what he says. Then Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshipped. Upon hearing the devastating news from the messengers, Job grieved. And he expressed his grief in four ways. Do you see it in the text? He stood up. He arose. He tore his robe from top to bottom as a sign of mourning and grief. He shaved all of his head off and he fell on the ground and worshiped. Now, I'm going to take the time to do this this morning. I, I want you to see exactly what the text is describing of Job. And hopefully I can get back up. This is literally what Job did.
His nose is completely in the earth. He is expressing his grief completely. And what I want you to know this morning that through these actions, Job teaches us it's not wrong to grieve. That as believers, our loss is real. And we should grieve. But listen, our grief should always lead to our worship. Job didn't stay in the grief. His grief was transformed to worship. And can you imagine in this moment with his nose in the dirt how angry and disappointed Satan must have been? He told God, you stretch out your hand against Job and he will get in your face and curse you. And in this moment, instead of cursing God, Job is laying prostrate before God with his nose in the ground. Worship. When our world falls apart unexpectedly and unexplainably, we don't dwell on why. We dwell on who. When our life falls apart and tragedy strikes, strength and comfort don't come from knowing why. Strength and comfort always come from knowing who, knowing God, trusting God, and worshiping God. And listen to me, friends. Listen. Job was able to worship God in this moment of loss because he walked with God when times were good, and he stored up a reservoir of help that led him to worship. And he knew, he knew that God was sovereign over his life. He knew that God was sovereign over the circumstances of his life. And he knew that even though his life changed, God did not. That circumstances may change and life may change. But God never changes. And no matter what happens in our life, listen. The sovereignty of God, if we'll embrace it, will lead us to a place of worship. Job, he responded to the sovereignty of God. At the beginning of verse 21, Job responded to the providence of God. Look at what he said. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. You say, Pastor, what is the providence of God? This is a great question. Here's the definition. I'm taking it straight from the Heidelberg Catechism. And this is what that catechism says. That the almighty, everywhere present power of God upholds heaven and earth with all creatures. Do you hear it so far? The almighty, ever present power of God upholds. He holds it all together. Heaven and earth and all of the creatures in it. He upholds everything. Now listen. And so governs them. And so governs all of his creation in such a way 
that health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. That is providence. All things come by His fatherly hand. This catechism declares that there's never a time in which suffering takes place in our lives by chance. For the Christian, there is no such thing as chance. Therefore, everything that Job experienced was a result of the work of divine providence. And that's why Job could say, I was born into this world with nothing, and when I returned to the dust, I'm not going to have a U-Haul with me and take anything with me where I'm going. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away because the Lord is providential. Do you know what Job was saying? I'm holding everything in my life loosely with open hands because I'm just a steward of the providential blessings of God. And he has the right to give it. And he has the right to take it away. Friends, that may be the hardest truth for you and I to accept this morning. We think, like Satan, that God owes us. And I would just remind all of us this morning, anything short of hell is the grace of God. At the end of verse 21, we see that Job responded to the goodness of God. Look at what he says. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Instead of cursing God, Job blessed God. And here's, here's how you need to understand this this morning. It's easy sometimes to say the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. It is another thing to say, blessed be his name. Give praise to his name. Even though he took it away, he's still good. He's still worthy of my worship. He is still worthy of my devotion. And when Job says, blessed be the name of the Lord, he's showing us that God is good, that God does good, that every good and perfect gift comes from Him, and that God decides what is good. And because God is so good, He is worthy of our blessing. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our worship, even when the blessings are taken away. That's what Job said. And finally, in verse 22, Job responded to the wisdom of God. Do you see this? In all of this, in all of what? In everything that Job just experienced in his life, he did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job held on to his integrity that we saw in verses 1 through 5. He didn't allow the calamities or the circumstances of his life to make him callous or critical. 
He did not, as the text says, curse God or charge God wrong for the sufferings and the difficulties in his life. He is declaring in this verse that he knew that God was wise and that God's will is perfect. Job is declaring that God is sufficient. That God is enough. That God is worthy of our worship. And that God is in complete control. Job is reminding all of us this morning that God holds the destiny of everything and everyone in his hands. And while he is upholding the universe and keeping the galaxies in place, he knows the exact number of hairs on your head. And he has shown and demonstrated his love and his sovereign care over your life by displaying that love Through an old rugged cross on which he sent his son to hang and die for your sins. He has shown how much he loves you through the blood of his own dear son. And because he allowed his son to suffer the full wrath and justice for sin... God's Son has put an end to suffering once and for all, for all eternity, when we see Him face to face. Suffering has been defeated. And friends, if God loves you so much to allow His Son to suffer in your place and identify with you, don't you think He has what you're going through this morning under control. Do you really think it's too difficult for him? It's too difficult for you. But it's not too difficult for him. Have you considered Job? Will you like Job? Follow adversity with adoration? Will you, like Job, refuse to bend to bitterness? Will you, like Job, live with an open hand? Will you, like Job, refuse to blame God and charge Him with wrongdoing? Have you considered, Job? Suffering is a multifaceted subject that leaves those within its grasp with more questions than answers. And you need no further evidence of that truth this morning than Job chapter 1. And while the author of this book does not give insight into why the wise of suffering in the life of Job. He does put on display four eternal attributes of God for every sufferer to see. And rather than focusing on the never-ending questions that suffering brings, this first chapter teaches us that when we are in the throes of unrelenting affliction, we should consider Job. And like Job, we should find rest in the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, the goodness of God, 
and the wisdom of God. Let's pray.